You know, we've talked about for the last few weeks this whole thing of confidence in Christ. And, you know, as we began Romans 8, we began to talk about this whole thing of, you know, is, can we, how can we have confidence in God? And one of the things we talked about at Easter was the thing of that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God no longer condemns us. We can have confidence because of that. We talked about that, you know, God, once he comes into our life, he gives us his spirit. We talked about that, uh, about what that means to us and how it gives us confidence to live life fully. Last week, uh, Chris uh, uh, shared a little bit, but basically through the uh, testimony of the Miklicks uh, about how God had worked with them through, or they saw God work in the midst of difficulties of life. But I've come to find that over the years that so often people, at least a percentage of people, as they go through the tough times of life, the ups and downs of life, sometimes it calls them to question can really have confidence in God. Today we come to probably one of the most uh, encouraging, but also maybe one of the most uh, difficult passages in all of Scripture to deal with. Uh, If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me over to Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. We're going to look at those today. Um, I spent a lot of time yesterday, once again, going back through this and thinking about this. I'd spent other time before uh, thinking about this as well. But I thought about how often I've I've had people to use this verse uh, in wrong ways. Uh, thinking that uh, making it say something that it really doesn't say, particularly verse 28. And today I want to spend some time thinking about this. I'm just going to basically go through these three verses and talk about what they mean to us and how because of what they mean to us we can have confidence in God even in the midst of the difficulties of life. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, all of us live in one of three places in life. We live either um, before pain, BP, we live in pain, IP, or we live AP, after pain. Uh, we all have difficulties in life. We know that. That's part of, part of life because we live in a fallen world. The Bible tells us that. But so what I've found so often is over the years, some people have twisted and misused this verse to clarify some things. And because of that, uh, many people sometimes lose trust in God because they think this verse says some things that it doesn't. Now, let me me say a couple things about what this verse doesn't say. One of the things this verse does not say is this. It does not say that all things are good. Obviously, there's a lot of bad in the world, right? There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. This is not a, a Pollyanna verse that says all things are good. It says all things work together for good. It also does not say that all things work out the way I want them to. It doesn't say that at all. We, we'd like for it to say that, but I've had people to say that before. You know, everything's going to be fine. And don't we always say that to people? It's all going to be fine. Sometimes it's not always fine. It's not claiming that either, but it's important to understand that. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that all things have a happy ending here on earth. So often we think that's what it says, but it doesn't say that. And it also doesn't say that God causes all things. It doesn't say any of those things. So what does this verse say? We're going to spend some time today talking about this. And really we need to talk about verses 29 and 30 as well if we're going to understand verse, verse 28. Verse 28, in a sense, is a promise of God. Verses 29 and 30 talk about the purpose behind the promise. And if we don't look at all that together, what happens is, is we'll miss the, miss the point of what it's saying here to us. So I hope today after we finish, my, my end goal is this for you, is that you will have confidence, more confidence in God in the ups and the downs of life, no matter where you are, whether you're, you know, before pain, in pain, or after pain. 
Now, some of you are lucky. You, you're, you're some of those people that just kind of like for years have just kind of ridden through life and things have been just hunky-dory and wonderful and rosy and this, this whole thing will be kind of, a, you know, kind of a theoretical for you. But for most of us here, this verse and these verses have a lot to say to us about where we are now or to understand where we've been. And so let's look at it for a few moments. Well, first of all, what it does say, it's, it starts off by saying, and we know, and we know. It doesn't say, and we hope. It doesn't say, and we wish, or and we want, or and we desire, or and we guess. It says, we know. This means that there's an absolute, unshakable confidence that we can have in what God's plan is for our life. You know, why is it that two people could have the same problem, and one of them grows through it, and the other person's destroyed by it? It's a difference between what they have confidence in, what they know. Secondly, it says, and we know that in all things, Paul says, uh, you know, how this, knowing this makes a difference on how you handle the difficulties in life. And we know that in all things, it doesn't say almost everything, it says all things. Now, what is included in the word all? Is, does that include uh, financial problems? Does that include uh, illnesses? Does that include relational problems? Does that include, does that include good things? See, normally we focus on all the bad stuff in life, right? It says here, and we know that in all things, all things God's working. And then it says this, we know that in all things God works. In, in King James Version it says God works together. I like that because circumstances always at the time do not seem to work together to, to seem to be good because it can be bad. And, and we realize that it's kind of like a recipe. I, I don't cook a lot, but I know how to do a couple of things. I've made chocolate chip cookies before. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you put the, oh, that doesn't work. I can't put my foot on that. Uh, if, because it, it tilts over. Um, if, if you were making chocolate chip cookies and you think about the ingredients, you know, like flour and eggs and I guess it's called lard, uh, something like that, butter, lard, one of the two, uh, and, uh, and sugar and some of those things that go in chocolate chips, you know, you go in there. Individually, some of those elements are nasty. Have you ever tried to eat flour by itself? Or tried to eat lard by itself? That is nasty. Now, sugar is pretty good. Chocolate chips are great. But the issue is, individually, by themselves, they're not too good. And so, but together, all together, they work together to bring about something that's really good, called chocolate chip cookies. And God is saying to us here in this verse, and Paul's saying to us, and we know that in all things, in everything, God works together. All these things in our lives, God is working together. They're working for the good. The fact is that God can even use the sinful things of life, the, the results of a sinful act in our, and to make things happen good in our life. God even takes the mistakes I, makes, I make and sometimes turns them around and brings good out of them. I mean, we look in Scripture and we see that. We think, you know, well, how could God possibly... The reason it could happen is because we're dealing with God here, not us. God can take the bad and make it good. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, there's an interesting genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. And if you look at most Jew Jewish genealogies, uh, the women are never mentioned in Jewish genealogies. If you look in the Old Testament. But you look in the genealogy of Jesus, four women are mentioned. The people that led up to Jesus being born. And it's interesting what the background of those four women are. The first one that's mentioned in verse, in verse 3 is, is Tamar. Tamar, in Genesis 38, Tamar seduced her father-in-law. And that's where her kids came from. Is that good? That's not a hard question. No, that wasn't good. 
but it was in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, secondly, uh, the second person mission, mission, mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is Rahab. What was Rahab's uh, occupation? Nobody knows, right? Thank you. Somebody knows. Prostitute, okay? Is that good? Is that who you want in your line of your, you know, you know here's, here's my order of people that's, you know, in my background. Now, we want, you know, people that are important, people that do good things. No, Jesus, in his uh, genealogy, has Tamar, a, a girl that seduced her father-in-law, where kids came from, Rahab, a harlot, Ruth, a Moabite. Now, I don't think what she did was that wrong, but culturally it was wrong because she married a, she married a Jewish person, and it was against the law. She broke the law of the day. And then the last person that's, that's mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, if you read through there and work your way through that wonderful you know, genealogy, is, is a person named Bathsheba. Who was Bathsheba? She was a person that committed adultery. So here we have four people in the genealogy, the line of Jesus, that basically were mess-ups. But, but God took that, and in the midst of that, he took like, these bad things, and in the process, made good out of it. Eventually, Jesus came out of that mix. And so we understand that God works in everything. He works together in all these things. But also, it says this in Romans eight twenty eight. It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him. For those who love him. This is a promise here in Scripture only for believers. This does not, all things do not work together for good for the unbelievers in the world. That's what it's saying here. A matter of fact, all things work together for the bad for unbelievers. Because you know what it says in Scripture about sin? It says the wages of sin is what? Happy times. No, 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 no. It could be for a while, for a season, but the wages of sin is death. That's what it's saying. So this is not a promise here from God for unbelievers. This is a promise for believers. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him. You see, if people are openly rebelling against God, he's not promising to work out all things in their life for the good. But for what he is saying is that if you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, Nothing that comes into your life, even if it comes in, and now God doesn't cause it all, but it comes, doesn't come by accident. Everything is father-filtered. God overreaches everything that Satan does, and he uses it for his own purpose. Even the mistakes we make, even the problems. He permits things to happen even when he doesn't plan them in terms of our own sin. And, and even the mistakes, the difficulties, the trials, God works for good. That's what he's saying here. Now, many people stop at verse 28, and that's all they do. And they, don't, if, they miss the point then if they stop at verse 28. Because if verse 28 in and of itself, by itself, says a lot of good things, it's a great promise. But if we don't understand why the purpose behind the promise, then we miss the point of everything that's trying to be said here in Scripture. See, Romans 8, 28 makes no sense at all unless you read Romans 8, 29, and 30. Romans 8, 20, uh, 29 and 30 is the reason behind 8, 28. It's, a, it's why 8, 28 is such a great promise. What is the God's number one purpose in our life? Well, Romans 8, 28, 29 says this. It says, starts off, 8, 28, we know that all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in verse 29, for those who for, for whom, uh, excuse me, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of, of his son. Now we're going to come back and talk about a couple of words here in a minute that totally just blow us away and get us all messed up. But 
But what I want to say is what the end result of that is. It says the purpose of God in our life is that we'll be conformed to the likeness of his son. We'll be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is his purpose for those who are believers. You see, God wants to make us like Jesus. God's number one purpose in life is not to make you happy, not to make you wealthy, and not to keep you in perfect health. You want me to say that again? God's number one purpose in life is not to make you happy, wealthy, or in perfect health. Health. His purpose is to make you conformed to the likeness of his son. That's what it says here in Scripture clearly. It's to make you like Jesus. The natural question then for most of us when we read this is this. How does that work? How does he do it? Well, Scripture says that God, over and over again, Scripture says that God uses two major things to help us to conform to the likeness and the image of Christ. Number one, he uses his word, the Bible. He uses his word, the Bible. Uh, John 17, 17, Jesus says this. He says, sanctify them by the truth, for your word is truth. Now, that word sanctify is a big Bible word that we really don't use. I don't don't know how many of you use sanctify in your speech every day. I don't use that. But it's a word that's used in Scripture, and it basically means this. It's a big term that means it's the process of making me like Jesus. It's this process we go through of becoming conformed to the likeness of Jesus. God, God said he uses his word to sanctify us. The more you read the word, the more we look at the word, reflect upon God's word, meditate upon his word, the more we do that and apply God's word, we become more like Jesus. I mean, have you ever seen a couple of people who have lived together for a long time, been married for a long time to start looking like each other? I mean, you ever seen that? It's kind of weird. I mean, sometimes it happens. Have you ever seen anybody that after a while have a dog, they start looking like their dog? Or the dog looks like, I mean, it's kind of weird. You ever notice people, their dogs are kind of like them? Not all the time, but sometimes it's kind of weird. You spend a lot of time with somebody, you start picking up on their attributes. God says the more time you spend with the Lord, and the best way to spend time with the Lord is spend the time personally with him in his word, getting to know him. It's like reading a love letter from God. That's what God's word is to us. It guides us to know the character of who God is, to know who Jesus Christ is. And that's the primary way that God wants us to learn about who he is. To trust in him, to know who he is. But the other way, the Bible says clearly, the other way that God helps us to become like Christ is through circumstances. Through circumstances. Difficulties, trials, common experiences, problems, pain, pressures, frustrations. That's what Romans 8, 28, uh, excuse me, Romans 8, 27 and 28 is all about. Remember last week we talked, or Chris talked about that somewhat, that during the difficulties and trials, God is working in our lives to do some things with us. It says, it talked about, you know, the Christ groans, the world groans, all this groaning is going on in, in the first few verses before that because there's a tough time. We go through the tough things of life. But through that, God's working in all kinds of ways. A matter of fact, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says to us that when you encounter trials, it says to rejoice. It kind of, kind of, sounds kind of sicko to the world that you rejoice in trials, but we've got to understand the purpose of what God's doing. God's purpose is to make us like Christ. And so in doing that, he's going to use his word. He's going to use circumstances as the two primary ways of doing that. 
First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says that trials are refining. They, they test us, prepare us, deepen and build our character in our lives. Matter of fact, I think, I think uh, Chris used this verse last week. If not, I'll use it again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, where Paul talks about uh, his life and the life of the believers around him. He says this about the circumstances of life. He says, therefore... We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we're being renewed day after day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory which that out, far outweighs them all. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, Paul's talking about all the things that are going on around him. And he's saying that it, he calls them light and momentary troubles. If you know the history of Paul, he did, I wouldn't call what he had light momentary troubles. Paul had things like he, he was five times he was beaten, literally beaten. Uh, twice he was shipwrecked. Uh, he was thrown into a dungeon. He went without food, without clothes. He was sick. I mean, you go through the life of Paul, it was one disaster after another for a period of years. But he calls these light momentary afflictions. You know, what I'm always amazed at is last, I was, we, were, we heard the story last week of the Micklicks and how God had worked in their life and the difficulties there. And every time I hear a story like that, and I hear other stories, I hear stories about people who've come from places like Rwanda. This past week, uh, uh, my wife was sharing with me about a person who lives, in this, uh, who lives somewhere close by here who, who uh, had a connection, came from over, I'm not sure it was Rwanda or one of the other countries. I want to meet this person, hear their story. But had gone through, basically, you know, their whole family had been killed because of persecution, but had this deep faith, this deep glowing faith in God. And in a sense, really did rejoice in the trials that went before them. You see, God uses the word and he uses circumstances to uh, make us like Jesus. Now, God's ideal way for you to grow in character, number one, is through his word. Because the thing is, is you read the word and then you act upon it. Isn't that the easiest way to do it? But if you don't humble yourself, yourself and allow yourself to be humbled before God, God will find ways of allowing, yourself to, allowing you to be humbled. But if you don't learn that way, God uses plan B, and that's circumstances. You know, I don't know about you, but um, so often you know, we, we don't always learn the easy way. We learn the hard way in life. Uh, through circumstances or through the word. It's, it's a lot smarter and a lot less painful if you appropriate and apply God's word in your life on a regular basis. And so often that we're like kids at home under a parent's authority who they rebel, and they say, well, I hate this authority. I'm going to go join the army. Brilliant. Yeah, talk about authority. I mean, they're going to get a real dose of that uh, pretty soon, you know. But that's sometimes the way we do it. And they, they deal with the circumstances of their choices as they go down the road. The thing is, is that uh, if God is going to make you like Jesus, which is his purpose in life, to make you Christ-like, he is going to take you through the same things that Jesus went through. He's going, to, he's going to help to grow you up. His purpose in life is not your comfort and not your happiness. His purpose in life, ultimately, the real joy that comes from inside comes from being Christ-like. And so what, what it says in Hebrews 2.10, it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Did you know what it says that? You know that in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now, who do we think we are? How are you going to learn obedience? How are you going to learn, uh, how are you going to learn maturity? 
The thing we need to understand is that God knows every situation that we're in and, he's, and that we're going through. And God is interested not only in what we're going through, but how we respond to what we're going through. Uh, I mean, one of our, my very fa- uh, favorite verses in Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says this. It says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. When you read that, you're going like, okay, I'm not going to give thanks in certain things. I just, but he says, you know, Jesus says, for this is the will of God. Jesus always did the will of God. So basically what? He always gave thanks. No matter what he went through. Why can we give? He doesn't say for everything give thanks. There's a difference between saying for everything give thanks and in everything give thanks. He's saying to us there are certain situations that you will not be thankful for. I'm not going to be thankful for, uh, you know, for having a disease, leukemia. I'm not going to be thankful for a divorce or for a major problem in my life. That's, that's sick to do that. But in the midst of that, as we know that God is working through that issue, that circumstance, that problem in life that we have, what it's saying to us that God's purpose, once again, in verses 29 and 30, God's purpose is to make us Christ-like, his ultimate goal for us and in our lives. Now, what is the purpose of Christ-likeness? What is it for? Verse 29 says this as we go back to it. It says, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Then it says this, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is not content to just have one son. He wants to have multitudes of sons and daughters. And Jesus was just the first. Now, we don't become like Jesus. We don't become Jesus. We become like it. Christ's likeness is his goal in life, that we become sons and daughters of God. Now, the remainder of this verse, verses 29 and 30, there's five terms that I want to deal with really quickly this morning that cause us to get hang-ups sometimes, but, but are important for us to understand about the process that God goes through to carry out his purpose in our life. The process that we go through to carry out his purpose in our life. It describes the scope of God's purpose for our life. In verse 29, it says, says this, uh, those that God foreknew. Now, foreknew, isn't that a strange word? What does that mean? There's a lot of, dis- there's a lot of disagreement about this one in theological circles. I will tell you that right up front. So I was a little hesitant to even deal with it this morning, but I will give you a basic description of two or three words here that get us hung up all the time. Foreknowledge. It's a debatable word. Uh, John Calvin said that means that God chose you in advance. Uh, John Wesley said that says, it simply says that God knew in advance that something was going to happen. There's a difference there. There's a lot of controversy over this word, but let me tell you what I basically understand the word to mean. It's basically saying, and I'm going to read what I wrote down so I won't misquote myself. Um, what he's basically saying is this, is your commitment, your Christian life did not begin with your commitment to God. But your Christian life began when God committed himself to you. He foreknew. He had a plan in, pur- in mind, in purpose, a purpose for your life before you were even in existence. For those who accept Christ, he has a plan for your life. And that plan is to become like Christ. God knew in advance. He knows everything. There's no past, no presence, no future tense with God. It's like this. You know, I, I don't know about you guys. Uh, DVRs are, are blessings and curses. If you're a sports fan, they can be a curse because you tape something and you go home and you're going, I don't want to, and somebody will start telling you the, to what's happened in the game or something or what the end of the game's like and the score, and you're going like, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Well, somebody tells you what the score is. You go home, do you watch it anyway? Yeah, I'll go ahead and watch it anyway. I mean, when NCAA basketball was on, I, I know this is not a great 
thing to Duke. But if Duke was on, you know, I would not miss a game because I'm a Duke fan. Carl would not miss Michigan State game because he's a Michigan State fan. Even if he knew the score, he knew what the outcome was, he'd probably go back and watch the game just to see, the, you know, how it unfolded, how it works. In a real sense, it's very much like God is watching a videotape of your life, and he already knows what's going to happen. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not bound by time. He knows the end result because he is, he's God. You know, Einstein uh, proved that there is a dimension beyond time, but the Bible knew that long ago that there's dimension beyond time. God can see a replay of your life. He knows in advance, and his, his choice is this. He says, even though I know in advance what you're going to do, here's my plan for your life, and you have to, I want you to choose this plan. He predestines. He, he understands. He foreknows this. Excuse me. That was the first word, foreknew. He has foreknowledge. Secondly, the second step is the word predestined. It says in verse 30, and those he foreknew, or verse 29 as well, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestination is based on this ideal foreknowledge of knowing in advance, of making a plan in advance. We don't need to get scared about this word, okay? We do not. It simply means this, that God made a decision about you ahead of time. He made a decision about you ahead of time. That his purpose, his plan for your life was that you become like Christ. That's his purpose in your life. It's the same, this word predestined is the same word we get our word horizon from. And it has a preposition in front of it that literally means the pre-horizon or the thing, the boundary that defines the limits or the boundaries. God chose in advance. John Stott, who is a uh, theologian, said that the purpose of predestination wasn't favoritism but holiness, Christ-likeness in our life. Now, we get under, this is where we get all wrapped up and messed up, I think, sometimes because... What it says in Scripture there, it says this. It says that he, we were predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. This verse doesn't even talk about heaven or hell. It doesn't talk about heaven or hell. The word predestination in Scripture is always used for believers only. It's never used in reference to unbelievers. There are some people that believe that God predestined some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. If that were true, uh, why do we go out and witness if you're automatically going to be saved? I mean, there were people who told William Carey who wanted to go out and start world missions. They said, young man, if, you wanna, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without you. But why does Scripture tell us over and over that we're to be a witness? I mean, my whole last week in, in, uh, in the first step was talking about this whole thing of evangelism of sharing the good news with other people. If God has already chosen, why, why even do that? You see, anytime anybody tells you that God predestined some people to heaven and other people to hell, show them 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. How, what do you do with that verse? What do you do with that verse? Do people perish? Yes. Is God's will, it says here, God's will is that none should perish. Why is that true? Because God's will is not always done. Because God gives us the freedom, the choice to make choices. He has a direction, he has a plan, he has a purpose for our life. That's why we have to pray the prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God's ultimate will is always done. That's what we're talking about here. What is God's ultimate will? Predestination's goal is not heaven, it's Christ's likeness. That's what God predestined for us, those who are believers.
Our purpose in life is not just to be comfortable, not just to be happy, not just to be health, healthy, but our purpose is to become like Christ. And because of that, it makes total sense then when we look at verse 28. Now, three other things real quick, and then we're going to wrap up here and sing a closing song. Th- three things that the last, verse 30. Is th- th- the third thing it says he did in verse 30, he, those he predestined, he also called. Those he, who, who he predestined, he also called. That word called simply means that God took the initiative in your salvation. That should give you confidence. It's not about you. We've talked about this a thousand times. It's not about you. God called you and you responded. You didn't take the initiative in your salvation. 1 John 4.19 says this. It says, we love him because he first loved us. He takes the initiative. He's the one that called. That should give us confidence in God that God loves us so much that he's reaching out to us. It's one thing it says. Secondly, another thing it says, those he called, he also justified. Now, this is not a word we use either, but one easy uh, way to remember it is, is, is this. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. Now, it means a lot more than that, but it means God makes you right with him. In perfect standing before him, he makes it just as if I'd never sinned. God does that for us. And that's what we started off chapter 8 talking about. No condemnation in Christ. Not because we deserve it, because God chose to do it. It gives us another thing to understand about the confidence in God. And finally, it says this, those he justified, he also glorified. And you're going, glorified, justified, what's all these words mean? Glorified is just the process of, the final process of making everything right with God. And it, it basically, glorification is the thing that we talk about, means ultimately God's going to complete his plan in your life. He's going to stick with you all the way. He starts with the beginning of him, him reaching out to you, and ultimately he wants you to become like Christ. And in the process of that, he's going to bring you to the ultimate triumph, and that was to be with him for all of eternity. God completes what he starts. God's working all these things in my life for good. Now, you're pro- totally confused, and you're uh, going like, oh, boy, that was, that was a little deep. Um, it's a tough passage. I want to tell you that. But the issue is, is this. What is the purpose of this is to help you to understand, God's word is to help us to understand that we can have confidence in him. No matter if we are BP before pain, IP in pain, or AP after pain. We're all, all of us are in some place in our lives. The sobering reality is life takes us through the cycle, through these, these three areas of life. And at any given moment, a faithful follower of Jesus could be in any of these three places. What should be our response then? We're going to talk about this next verse next week extensively. But the next verse tells our response. This, what then shall we say in response to this? All the stuff that just been said. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know what that means? Confidence. Trust. I can trust God. I can be confident in God that no matter what I'm going through, if I'm a believer, his purpose is to make me like Christ. And ultimately, what it is, what it is, is that even though the pain is hurtful, it's not something I want right now, he has a purpose in it. And all things will work for good for those who love God. They work together. You know, someday we can look back. You know, and some of the things in life I'm not really sure we'll be able to look back in this earth. It may be heaven before we understand how it all fits together. The tapestry of life. But God is saying to us, you can have confidence that even in the midst of the, if you're IP, in pain, 
that God is with you. He has a purpose. He'll take those things, those, even those things that aren't part of his plan for your life, he'll take those, if you're a believer, if you're following him, if you're trusting him, he will take those things and he'll make it all work together for good. Ultimately, to be, carry out his plan, his purpose for your life. You see, Romans 8.28 explains the unexplainable things of life. And the question we need, really need to ask ourselves is this. Do I really trust in Jesus' plan for my life, God's plan for my life? Do I really believe that he's working in my life in the good and the bad and the ugly? Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.